Welcome back to the arbitration station. Uh, quite possibly the worst arbitration clause I've ever read in my life. Okay, ready? One, two, three. England. Russia. Oh, <laughs> well, of course. He's going to get disbarred in two seconds after all of this. Yeah. So if I were the sole arbitrator. It's called, give him the old razzle-dazzle, Joel. You just, you know, if it sounds good, maybe they won't. Relaciones equal to. Arriba. Hello and welcome to the Arbitration Station. My name is Joel Dorcas Kulboy. And I am Brian Kodak. Together we are your co-host for another episode of the Arbitration Station podcast, covering both commercial and investment arbitration, 66% serious substance and 33% general ponderings and musings of the arbitration world and 1% Brian Kodak's office air conditioned sound. <laughs> it's where, white noise. Where in the world are you, Joel? I am in the Kingdom of Denmark. Where in the world are you, Brian? I am in the United Kingdom. Of Denmark. Of De- <laughs> Denmark. <laughs> you wish you were united. Scandinavia. Oh, okay. So, um, I guess we what's can, up? Well, I guess we can first start off with our sponsors. Um, we'd like to thank the IA Reporter, as always. I think they've gotten a lot of... Uh, a lot of airtime i've had a lot of people come up and be like oh they're your sponsors for this season but who we have not given enough airtime to are our indiegogo supporters who so generously donated to our indiegogo campaign if you have not donated it's over and we don't like you so that's that but let's give a quick it's round it's not really over though i think it's still open i think it's if we were better sales pitch people we we would say if you still feel like helping us out and supporting us i think it's technically possible no yeah uh, just email us and i'll send you my personal account details and you can transfer <laughs> me as much money as you'd like um uh yeah maybe it is open give it a shot if not send us money um we also take cash in envelopes so we would like to thank matthew brown um anna maria Tamanen, mike michaela potesta J Ahmad zero eight one one eight six Andreas Hacke, um, another anonymous donor, anonymous donor Duarte Henriquez, anonymous, anonymous. Karina Baltag. Karina Baltag as well. And thank, thank you all. I think that's it. Yeah. Right. Feels good. You, you you help the arbitration station podcast, and specifically, you help us pay the researchers and editor that work with us so that they don't have to do it on free spare time with no remuneration at all. So thank you very much. We all thank you. The money is going right into the production of yes, this podcast. I can confirm that I did give the money last weekend to one of our researchers. So it is, is actually happening. <laughs> who, you, who you met in London over the holidays, which is a nice bridge and allows me to ask you, how was the holidays in London? Exactly. It was it was great. Uh, I mean, Christmas time here is amazing. Carnaby Street is all lit up and, you know, Regent Street and Oxford Street are all lit up and it's quite cozy and the weather's not too cold. So um, everything was nice. And New Year's, it was great. There was actually something interesting. There were fireworks. They do fireworks on the Thames River by the L- London Eye. And someone had noticed that they had a certain amount of stars in one of the fireworks that equated to the amount of stars in the European Union flag. And they thought it was this like political declaration. Oh, really? <laughs> by the city. It was quite interesting. That's subtle. 
I know, and not true. Like, <laughs> I think it, they just like were trying to find something. How was New Year's in Scandinavia? It was nice. I was on the Swedish side of the bridge and just enjoying life. But then it was pretty quickly back to the salt mines, which is my dissertation work. So I didn't have too, too much of a holiday break. I actually got most of the break before when I drove home. When you recorded the previous episode, I got a few days off. But otherwise, I've been uh, chained to my laptop going over footnotes and other things that I've been sloppy with so far. Well, let's all thank Joel for his dedication during this trying process of sticking with the podcast, even though he may have well better enjoyed a break from the podcast to finish his uh, dissertation. He has stuck it out for a couple more weeks. Yeah, I tried to get out of it, but you <laughs> didn't allow me. <laughs> he <so>. literally <laughs> tried to get out of it, and I literally rang his neck. So I'll be fine. Uh, nothing will ever be hard again uh, professionally at least after I submitted this dissertation, then it will be just podcasting and backpacking for the rest of my life. <laughs> you wish, <laughs> you wish you're too ambitious for that. So in this episode, we have, as is customary, three segments. First, service of notice. So um, I can hear your silent protest. <laughs> oh, you didn't hear my yawn? Sorry. <laughs> Some of our best segments have actually started as me suggesting a topic and, and you saying this will never work. That's true. That's uh, so, true. So we'll see. This is a favorite of mine, a seemingly mundane topic. But uh, how do you serve the respondent in an arbitration and what happens if you do not? And then it's the group of companies doctrine, right? That's right. There's a new case that came down in India. And thank you to our researcher, Rishi Rahija, for pulling up this research, but we kind of wanted to use him because he is based in India to kind of give us some um, facts or hot topics that were coming out of the Indian jurisdiction. Uh, we kind of used one case to extrapolate a principle, which is the group of companies, doctor, and what does it mean? Does it really apply? And how does it bind non-signatories, if at all? Great. And no joke, we just got an email from Rishab. Uh, for the third and final segment as well, the happy fun time, which is fake arbitration. And it's about, his email is about fake arbitrations uh, that have been set up systematically, it seems, in India a few years ago. Plural. We'll see. Maybe we will shoot from the hip and use that case as well as part of the fake arbitration segment, which is happy and fun. Yeah, I think this is actually a really interesting topic. Um, and I, you kind of don't even think about it, but you realize that we're all functioning off of like a gentleman's handshake or gentle people's handshake um, <laughs> on the, you know, the veracity of a printed out piece of paper with the Stockholm Chamber of Commerce emblem on the top of the paper. Yeah. Um, and that's what you take to court to get it enforced. So how easy is that to forge? Find yes. Out. Okay, let's go with the eighth episode of the third season. Ninth? 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 Great. Let's say it's ninth now. If it's not, we'll change it. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, this ne next segment of service of notice belongs to the category of segments that Brian feels are below our dignity, <laughs> but that I think we should do. <laughs> you got served! <laughs> Okay, that that's the the end. 
and <laughs> well, all that you will say on this matter. <laughs> it seems too mundane for the great thought leader Brian Kotick, but here is why you're wrong. It does matter. And I dare say this because for once I'm the one with practical experience that you lack because I've clerked in a Stockholm district court True. while you are an a national metropolitan arbitration person with no court experience. I thought you were going to say alien, but yeah, <laughs> that's true. That is yeah, true. That is true. Enlighten me, Joel. Enlighten me. Courts do pay a lot of attention to when, how, and if a party has been properly served. And I say that having clerked in Sweden, which is generally, I think, the least formalistic jurisdiction in the world, maybe. So I can only imagine how important this is in other jurisdictions where you have like whole departments at courts and ministries trying to ensure the proper service of parties to, to proceedings. And we are talking about this, of course, not in the court context. So, Brian, you're excused for not having worked in a municipal court with family <laughs> disputes. <laughs> in the arbitration context, we do have the Uncertral Model Law, which uh, in its section 21, which is entitled uh, Commencement of Arbitral Proceedings, only says the following. Unless otherwise agreed by the parties, the arbitral proceedings in respect of a particular dispute commence on the date on which a request for that dispute to be referred to arbitration is received by the respondent. And that is generally all that we have. The request for arbitration or whatever you call the document that sets the whole thing going, it's when it's received by the respondent. That is sort of the critical effective date of when everything starts. And being lawyers, there are of course a few qualifications to when something is received by the respondent. Uh, who sends this? Let me ask you, Brian. Who is in charge of ensuring that the respondent has been notified? The filing party. That is right. But you should have answered, it depends. It depends. <laughs> it's the only answer that is always <laughs> correct if you're a lawyer. <laughs> yes, generally, of course, it is the, the party that wishes to uh, get the arbitration going. But if it's an institutional arbitration, it is common that it is the institution, the secretariat of the arbitral institution that has to serve before the file is like transferred to the tribunal. Right. Right. That you, you you did that while at the SEC, right? I was mostly Correct. bringing you coffee, so yeah. <laughs> yes, you were serving me coffee. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so um, all is good and well so far. If the respondent has received it, um, no problem uh, with the institution or the initiating party being the sender. But... We do have the post-award issues. Section 34 of the model law states that an arbitral award may be set aside if the party that tries to set the award aside was not given proper notice. And this is mirrored by a provision in the New York Convention, which allows for non-enforcement or non-recognition if one party was not given proper notice. So you can have awards set aside and you can avoid enforcement if there was an issue with the notice, which is why we are talking about this and why it is not mundane and boring. So let's turn to some of these issues which may complicate the whole thing. First of all, who can receive the notification? Mm. I would venture a guess here and say that this is the most common argument. 
we don't know who the person was that signed the slip from the messenger or what have you. Uh, I've seen this a bunch of times and I'm sure you have as well, at least in like a seventh alternative argument kind of context. Right. And if it's a corporate entity that you are serving, depending of course on the applicable law, you have to get into a whole analysis on authority. Implied, apparent, actual, like who was this person and, and was there actual authority for that person to sign on behalf of the company? If not, was there some other reason that would justify that it seemed at least to the serving party that the person who signed it had authority? And uh, we do actually have some cases on this. Are you with me so far, Brian? Oh, I'm with you. Good to know. <laughs> and I actually have some experience with this. So we, you think that I'm in the dark. Well, we do tell. Uh, well, we had, to, I worked at, a, you know, our, we have clinical programs in the U.S. when you're in law school. And so you do get some practical experience when, um, when you're in law school under the supervision of one, one of the teachers. And uh, we had to serve a, a very remote farm in Panama. Um, and there was no way for wait, DHL. Wait, hold on. Can we pause here? A, a farm? Yeah. Okay, so the farm was the respondent. No, it was an adoption. It was adoption case, and we needed to inform the biological father that the adoption uh. proceedings were happening. And so we had to serve notice. But uh, this, I mean, I think the address didn't even have a number. It was just like Finca Number Three um, <laughs> in in Panama. And so DHL didn't know how to get there. Uh, FedEx didn't know how to get there, so we were like giving it to the local town crier, basically, to to go run <laughs> over and like sign an affidavit to say that they actually delivered it and tried to deliver it. And I'm sure you're going to get into this. Uh, well, yeah, maybe, but this was actually something I wanted to discuss, although it it, it doesn't fit under the, the specific questions I wanted to address. But I let, let's go with it now that you mentioned it because I'm interested in this. How well do you, as the party who tries to get things going, instruct? the messenger because it is typically and this we will talk about it is typically like a physical person you know serving as in a u.s right. court uh, drama and how do they know to whom they should give the slip yeah that's a good question um usually well usually if you're getting if you're serving especially well in the u.s you would ask for uh, proof of delivery so someone there has to sign. Usually they'll ask for that person's name, or if they don't, then they have a, you know, a, a legal representative that is there to sign on their behalf or something like that. But they, oh yeah. But it, it does. It can happen that, and it has happened that we have effectuated service or notice, um, and then realize that the person was just the doorman and had no idea who the person was. And then, Oh, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Good. I'm so happy about the way that things turned out. Cause this is where I wanted to get back. And this is also what is addressed in the, in the case I mentioned, mm -hmm. uh, which is Glencore agriculture versus conquer holding in the English high court from last year, mm -hmm. um, which in which a notice of arbitration was emailed to a company employee and it was not deemed to be good service and the award was ultimately actually set aside mm. because it was a junior back office employee uh, who had received the email that uh, started the arbitration and none of the communications initially had been passed on to the company's legal department or like any other superior uh, 
And there's a difference here, the court said, between generic email addresses to an individual employee. Uh, there's a difference between a generic email address and uh, an individual employee's email address, which I think is uh, crucial, actually. Yeah, especially when you're serving a state, for example. Yes, exactly. And that is, uh, for us investment treaty arbitration nerds, that is, of course, the context in which you usually encounter this. And I have a few uh, interesting examples from uh, emergency arbitration, which, oh, as our listeners one. may know, it's a, it's a special interest of mine. Because if you recall, when we talked about this like a year ago, under the SEC rules, which uh, are the only arbitration rules that allow for, or the only ones that are being used anyway, uh, in treaty-based context that allow for emergency arbitration in, uh, based on investment treaties, you have five days to render a decision. And how do you notify a state within that time frame, or ideally within hours so that the state can defend itself within the five days. And here the, the generic email approach is common because you don't always have specific emails to like the person at the Ministry of Justice who is in charge of defending the state, like specified on the webpage. So you have to go with generic email addresses. Right. And I sh should say before I say the next thing that uh, I know the SEC would point out that the SEC are, as I said initially, in charge of notifying, and they do like everything. They don't just send emails, they also send messengers and physical mails and pick up the phone, and they really work very hard to ensure that the respondent is notified. But in this emergency context, when it was a, a live issue, and where states often do not even participate, so it really becomes, at the post-award stage, you can really talk about this, because the state typically hasn't even been able to or at least did not put up a defense, that's what you would raise. Like, we didn't even know about this. And um, there have been a few cases, I think there are two cases, two emergency cases, where the emergency arbitrator mentioned that emails were sent to various ministries to the generic email addresses that were provided publicly, and the emails didn't bounce. Uh, hence, the emergency arbitrators assumed that the state was aware, basically. Yeah. How do you feel about that? So the just the absence of a bouncing, you know, message not received email, you can assume that the proper person at the other end did read the email and understood its content. No, I mean ab absolutely not. I don't I don't think that's right. I it, it's going back to like the, the the fax machine dilemma back in the day when you would serve notice to someone via fax machine but they weren't in the office to actually receive the piece of paper. Sure it came there, but notice has to be I mean, actual notice. I mean, these these people need. Uh, to but how how do you determine that they need to respond? But if they don't want to respond, right. they won't, of course. And then, I mean, th this is. I, I think it's not as easy. I, I agree with you, uh, just purely on instinct. But then it would be so easy for a party who wishes to obstruct the arbitration from just just staying away. This is what courts do, right, all well, the time when you have like criminals on the other side. You if you, you charge them with serious crimes, and of course they will just avoid the notice if they right. can. Well, that's why you do both. Um, you never just email. That's, yeah. You always then send a hard copy via delivery. Nice. Then we have another issue, though, if you do that. Uh, what about language? Mm -hmm. And this is another favorite case of mine because it is the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> the Askomstati versus Kazakhstan, a very big <laughs> ECT case. Yes under the SEC rules, and uh, the award was upheld by courts in Sweden, and there's a lot of interesting legal issues, both in 
the award itself, uh, which was written by Karlheinz Böckstiegel, which means that it's about 9,000 pages long and <laughs> very hard to navigate. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of interesting legal issues in the set aside and uh, enforcement is currently undergoing in like five different jurisdictions, which is interesting in itself Including as well. Sweden, yeah. Yes, exactly. But uh, for our particular purposes right now, the uh, during the arbitration, Kazakhstan did not appoint an arbitrator. So the SEC appointed one on behalf of the state in full compliance and accordance with the SEC rules. But at the challenge stage, Kazakhstan challenged this fact as a procedural error and gave a million different reasons. And one was that the request for arbitration, which was signed for by an unspecified person at a ministry, I think, did not spe specify that if Kazakhstan didn't respond, the SEC would ultimately appoint an arbitrator on behalf of the state. Uh, and this didn't fly because it's pretty clear from the SEC rules that th that's what happens. Yeah. It doesn't have to say so in the letter. If you've consented to arbitration under the SEC rules, you are assumed to understand the implications. But the state also said this. The letter from the SEC was in English. And there aren't a lot of fluent English speakers, uh, even lawyers, at the ministry. So we didn't know what was going on until the arbitrator had been appointed for us because we don't, you know, necessarily read English that well. Mm, eh. <laughs> Good try. The treaties, right. the treaties in English, so and and the SEC rules are in English. Uh, I don't know about the ECT. I mean, it is in English, but isn't it also in Russian as equally authentic as English? Yes. Uh, does it say in the ECT what the language of arbitration would be? No. Okay. Uh, and uh, oh, I should have no known this, actually, because, I, I mean, that's something you agree upon in the arbitration, typically. And I don't recall on the top of my head if they had agreed to English as the procedure language. Probably they hadn't because they weren't notified of the arbitration, they claim. Hmm. Mm. Catch-22. Anyway, there's another case that might throw some light on this, uh, also from, from the UK, the English Commercial Court, where this uh, different language thing was discussed um, because it was um, a Russian case at the International Commercial Arbitration Court, the ICAC, at the Russian Chamber of Commerce and Industry in, in Moscow. And the defendant did not participate and the tribunal issued an award anyway. And then the defendant tried to set it aside because it had not been notified. And they argued that the claimant had not sent a letter before uh, threatening the arbitration. And when they, or not they, when the ECAC institution sent a letter ultimately to the respondent, uh, it was all in Russian with no translations. So the respondent didn't even know what it was. They didn't know what ECAC was. Mm -hmm. uh, and they just believed that it was you know, the claimant complaining in Russian, which they didn't understand. Basically. Uh, uh, so the court did not set aside the award here because they basically felt that the respondent should have done some more diligence and not just assumed that it's another complaint letter yeah. from the claimant. And it was like the commercial arbitration court was on it and uh, they didn't even try to translate or ask any follow-up questions. And, and here the contract provided for arbitration under Russian law and the language of the arbitration was to be Russian and the dispute related to performance of a contract in Russia. So it was not crazy to assume that the respondent would have some sort of muscle to be able to read Russian. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, yeah, but then you, yeah, you have the, 
I mean, it, it, it goes, maybe you're going to get into this. It goes to the, the, the amount of effort basically done for the person providing notice and how have they done their due diligence in providing notice and you can't ask them, you know, I mean, they're not going to go there, hold their hand and like recite it in a soliloquy about the notice. Like they, they can only do what they're, they're able to do. And then the respondent, I mean, is basically assumed to have received notice in that, especially in an ex parte proceedings, because it is very sensitive and you have to really play it by the book. Um, so if you have if you have a non-responding respondent and someone who's not going to participate, yeah. the only way that you can prove it is how much effort you've done in providing notice. And if you've, you know, usually you do it in multiple different ways. You try and find the person's home address, you know, the representatives based on the company's registration and who the legal representatives are and their home address, and then you send it to them. And, I mean, you really have to go to many extents if you don't get a response. Now you're thinking like a lawyer. Because <laughs> that was basically what I was going to say. There's a few other cases, and I just came to think of another one that we talked with to Jan about our editor from the Czech Republic, of the Binder versus Czech Republic case, which was similar as well in the sense that the respondent was not present in, in the proceedings because he had not received the notice because it was sent like somewhere else than his preferred uh, place of residence, I think. And there's another case in one of the Yuko's uh, many spin-off cases in New York where the, the facts were flipped uh, in terms of language as well, that everything was sent in English, but some minor company in Russia uh, claimed to not have any English speakers, but they had also consented to arbitrate in English. So, But the point that you were raising is like the final point I want to end this on, which is common to all the cases I've mentioned in Stockholm, London and, and New York, you have to react. You have to like do your best as the claimant because it might be appealing to get the arbitration, especially if it's by default and you get what you want almost automatically. Uh, but then since it can be set aside or recognition or enforcement can be denied if you haven't, it's a good idea to be proactive and like translate and, you know, uh, and that, of course, goes for the respondent as well. Uh, if you get it, you can't just claim ignorance. You have to ask the sender what it means or request extensions and, you know, do do something more than just put it in a drawer and assume it's going to go away. You mm -hmm. can't get out of an arbitration simply by saying you didn't understand that an arbitration was initiated when you really should have, basically. Right. But you have to do, yeah, and... You have to do your due diligence, even though you're not going to get a response. You've got to really cover your bases. Oh, I love the baseball metaphors. <laughs> Is it, I, you, you do cover your bases in baseball, no? Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know if it comes from baseball, but um, you definitely hit a home run with this segment. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Let's end this before it all blows up. All right, and now we will be talking about the Group of Companies Doctrine via a uh, kaleidoscope uh, from an Indian case that came down in April 2018. It was actually a Supreme Court judgment from the Indian Supreme Court um, that invoked the term Group of Companies, but a closer look at the case shows that it wasn't 
necessarily the group of companies doctrine that was applied. And this was given to us by a researcher, as we said, and we kind of thought that this would be a good segue into talking about the group of companies doctrine in general. Um, so if we look at this specific case in the Indian Supreme Court, we have a share purchase agreement between two parties, um, KCP and KSL, but I'll just call them um, claimant and respondent. Um, and basically, there was a share purchase agreement, and in that agreement, it said that KCP could transfer any of their shares to any assignee or transferee. And they did so, they transferred their shares to this, um, what they call the nominee in this case, called Sharon Properties. And there was an arbitration between Sharon Properties and the respondent in that case. And they ended up getting an award against Sharon Property, and they tried to enforce the award against Sharon Properties um, in, uh, in Indian courts. And the... Supreme Court looked at, well, basically Sharon Properties said that they weren't a signatory to the SBA. They only received these shares under um, this transfer provision in the SBA, but they were not necessarily signatories to the SBA, and the SBA came, contained this arbitration agreement under which the arbitration began. Um, and so what had happened was is that the Indian Supreme Court said that, well, uh, in and notice that KCP sent to KSL, it said that KCP and Sharan Properties were a group of companies. And the Indian Supreme Court said, well, because they're a group of companies, they had this intent to be, de be bound to the arbitration agreement in the SPA um, under the group of companies doctrine. But if we actually talk about the group of companies doctrine is what we're going to get into. That's not necessarily what the group of companies doctrine says. The group of companies doctrine is not um, using the term to bind non-signatories that had no intention to be bound or should not have been bound by the facts of the case. Um, it's actually a legal principle that should be applied under certain criteria, which we are going to expound on in a second. Um, but foreign courts have presumed that India recognizes the group of companies doctrine. Um, for example, in a German um, high regional court case, they said that the Indian law recognizes this doctrine, but it's not exactly true. Um, although India may recognize the doctrine and has an inclination to recognize the doctrine, they have not expressly done so. Um, so what, what was the difference here? It was that the uh, the two uh, parties, the KCP and Sharan, had expressed their intent to be bound. And exactly. they took it on that like the narrower factual ground rather than a doctrine that would bind them against their will. Right. They're not saying under Indian law we recognize the group of companies doctrine. It's just that in this um, in this letter, yeah, yeah, this letter sent, they said our group of companies are requesting to execute a uh, share transfer deed in the following names and then named Sharon Properties, i.e. saying that they're part of a group of companies. Um, so it's not necessarily saying that they approve of that doctrine as such, but as you said, it's, it's just the facts of the case show that they had an intent to be um, subsumed under this SPA yeah, and therefore you, subject to the arbitration agreement. You should always read... The judgment. I bet right. that the German court didn't read the judgment. <laughs> exactly. Um, no, that's definitely right. I mean, you have a lot of people just read the holding and then they don't really understand where that came from. And if you're yeah, exactly. any lawyer worth your weight in gold, you're going to be, uh, and you need to, you know, make a differentiated case, it's always good to just read a couple lines up from the holding <laughs> and you'll be able to find <laughs> some good material. Yeah, if not, you can host a podcast. Uh, there you go. Get it all wrong. <laughs> um, so, 
our researcher quotes William Park, which I think was a, a funny quote and not very rare for William Park to to quote, but he basically says that like consummated romance, arbitration rests on consent. And that's basically the underlying <laughs> principle for um, for the group of companies doctrine is establishing, did this non-signatory um, intend to be bound by the arbitration agreement that's signed on a contract between two other parties? Um, but also, can a third party non-signatory use an arbitration agreement uh, to which it is not a party to um, initiate an arbitration? It kind of goes both ways, and I'll get into that in a second. Um, but if we're just going to put like a simple definition on this on this principle, uh, we could say that the group of companies doctrine is a legal theory that enables you to enjoin um, non-signatory parties to an arbitration, so not enjoin, join uh, non-signatory parties to an arbitration. So basically saying that a party that has not signed onto the contract containing the arbitration agreement can still be brought into an arbitration under this doctrine. Um, it's been known to be kind of an awkward, inappropriate expression for joining. And that's why a lot of people have, or a lot of jurisdictions have not used the group of company doctrine per se, but kind of have worked around it or have used it in a different context to just find consent of this non-signatory to be bound. Um, and if we look at it in practice, um, we have a statistic from Bernard Honachow. How do you pronounce his name? Honachow? Uh, Hanotyo. Hanotyo. Thank you. I, I, I have no idea. Why do you assume I have authority? Because I can pronounce Dutch names. Yeah. He's Belgian. Yeah. Han, Hano. It's you're, the, you're the French speaker, actually. I, I, I bet it's uh, best pronounced in French. Yeah, no, that's not a French last name. It's Hanotyo. Hanotyo. Okay. But he basically says in... Um, that it, in only 25% of the survey cases that they conducted a survey, only 25% of them did the tribunal agree to extend the arbitration clause um, to non-signatories. So it's not, even though the um, this specific doctrine is not seemed to exist in all jurisdictions, a lot of jurisdictions have that principle, but still even having that principle um, in some kind of manifestation, it only in 25% was considered to extend. So it's not even that um, useful of a concept or legal principle in general. Um, the initial case, and if you've studied this, if you studied arbitration at all, you know that the Dow Chemicals Award is the main award from which this came. Um, and it's basically Dow Chemicals company was the parent company of three subsidiaries. Two of the subsidiaries concluded contracts with Isover Saint-Gobain, there, there was my French there, containing ICC arbitration clauses. Um, and both of these contracts with the subsidiaries provided that Dow Chemical France would be the one to make deliveries under the contract and would be the only one performing these deliveries under the contract. Um, but after several claims were brought against Dow Chemicals Group relating to the difficulties in regard to one of the products, Dow Chemical Company, Dow Chemical Company AG, Dow Chemical Company Europe, and Dow Chemical Company France requested the commencement of arbitral proceedings pursuant to the clause contained in those agreements signed by Dow Chemical Europe and Dow Chemical AG. The defendant in those arbitration objected, arguing that the tribunal did not have jurisdiction over Dow Chemical Company and Dow Chemical Company France's claims because neither were signatories to the underlying contracts containing these ICC arbitration clause. Why would you, as a claimant, if you're within the same group, 
want to request arbitration on behalf of four corporate entities within the group rather than two? What what could be a reason for that? I don't understand really the why are you going to join more more parties than than needed? Yeah, I, I know or I can see the point if you're a claimant and you want to get more respondents drawn into a more like right. deeper pockets and more people to pay. But if you are the the claimant, why would, and especially if you're within the same group, which is almost always the case, I guess, yeah. why would you want more entities to be named as claimants than? Sometimes it has to, to do with the problem in uh, claiming damages uh, because either you. Oh, of course, stupid. No, 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 no. I, I wouldn't have known that if I wasn't on the. the um, on cases that had multiple claimants. Uh. Uh, but basically, uh, yeah, so either to claim damages, either the money, um, the person uh, receiving the damage is, is spread across different claimants, or um, the, the money would flow to the wrong person if only one person were named. Oh, right, yeah, and it might be tax benefits and other things as well, depending on which entity actually gets the, the money. Absolutely. Um, so, so, yeah, then, not a corporate lawyer. <laughs> Hashtag not a corporation. Uh, so the tribunal had that notwithstanding the distinct legal entities of its members, a group or company constitutes one and the same economic reality. Um, so you look at through the involvement of the party's conclusion of the contract, performance of the contract, or termination of the contract, you can see that all parties had consented to the non-signatory's participation in the contract, and therefore, by implication, the arbitration agreement underlying it. Um, so you do have to look to certain criteria and variables to see um, how this non-signatory can be said to be bound. Um, okay, this is hashtag not a corporate lawyer again. Is this the same thing as piercing the corporate veil that you hear from time to time? That's actually a really good question because I did some, I looked this up because I didn't really understand how those two would play into each other. Uh, so it's kind of the, I would say, it, it can be, and I think what, and this is the problem with using group of companies doctrine as this, you know, international, customary international law doctrine that has arisen because it comes up in different permutations. And the piercing the corporate veil, I would say, would be more of an American reiteration of this um, doctrine because not all, um, not all of jurisdictions have piercing the corporate veil as, um, as a doctrine in and of itself. Um, so you would have, I mean, I would say there's like, I found that there was five common scenarios that are present in cases where um, you would want to join a non-signatory. Um, so n the first one would be a non-signatory's participation in the contract formation, which I talked about. A single contract scheme constituted by multiple documents. Um, which I think would be in line with the Dow Chemicals case, um, implied or express acceptance of the arbitration agreement by non-signatories, where whether in the particular arbitration itself or in another forum. The fourth one would be absence of the signatory corporate personality. And then the last one would be fraud or fraud-like abuse of the corporate forum. And that would be where piercing the corporate veil would really Oh, yeah, yeah, of course, because you're piercing some like made-up defense. Exactly. Um, so in that case, you would want to join. So uh, you would kind of use piercing the corporate veil to get to a joinder of the non-signatory. Okay, I see. Whereas in the Dow, chem Dow Chemical case, the the parties under or behind the corporate veil, they all wanted to be drawn in. So you don't have to pierce the veil because they already exactly. want it. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and then there's, so there's uh, other variations of the doctrine. We have a, you have 
different cases, finding like expansive interpretations, kind of throw everything in in the kitchen sink and you have more of a cautious interpretation, which is something like, you know, the SEC secretariat says, you know, we we definitely don't want to have an expansive interpretation of joinder, for example. Mm. Um, so the IC, there's an ICC case number 5103, which would give us an expansive interpretation where it said that when concluding performing, non-performing and renegotiating the contractual relations with the defendant, the three claimant companies appear to have been real parties to the contract. So you have this appearance uh, being the only determination of whether a joinder of parties would exist. And that seems to be a bit expansive. Whereas if you compare it to ICC case number 11405 of 2001, um, which whether where the arbitral tribunal held that there is no general rule in French international arbitration law that would provide that non-signatory parties members of the same group of companies would be bound by an arbitration clause whether always or in determined circumstances what is relevant is whether the parties intended for the non-signatory to be bound um and that's kind of leads us to basically say it, it, it really goes down to the intent and the intent of the parties to be bound, which, yeah. which makes sense. I mean, if you're talking about general contract principles um, without giving it a name and a hat, you basically just say, well, what, what was their intent of the parties? Um, and Can I have a, a sidebar here? Yeah. Because of the, the two ICC cases. Do, do the ICC case numbers just run chronologically from one to the, infinity? The beginning of time. <laughs> yeah, and other institutions uh, like ICSID and SEC, they do it like on a yearly basis. So you get the year and then you assign a number running on that year, but you start over again with like 2019 001. Right. Whereas every time I see an ICC case, like now you mentioned that the, for the expensive one was like 5,000 something and the cautious one was 11,000 something. Mm -hmm. And I've seen some newer cases uh, that have been like 20 or 30,000, I think. So. That's, I don't know, maybe we should ask somebody from the ICC, I shouldn't ask you this, but I, I just realized that maybe they just add cases to the very large pile that they have already up until they reach hundreds of thousands. It would be interesting if they, had, if they did that, case number one. Yeah, exactly, which zero. is the first ICC case. Hmm. You know what, <laughs> I, I actually know a French PhD student who I think now at this point must have defended his dissertation on like the ICC history. We'll try to get him on. Uh, assuming he now is a doctor and can speak with authority and ask him this and some other things on the ICC history. That would be cool. And we can interview the person from the first case if they're still alive. Yes, that that has to be like 100 years ago. <laughs> when I was in my first ICC case. <laughs> okay, sorry. You were saying. <laughs> Important things, Joel. Uh, <laughs> So basically, I mean, and then we have kind of positions of different jurisdictions where you have the French side, which I kind of just quoted, the document is recognized um, in France, but it is not necessarily, it's done in a, in a cautious approach. The UK has rejected the doctrine emphatically. The US um, is a bit strange. They don't really do the group of companies doctrine, but as you say, we do have the, the piercing the corporate veil and that may be used to kind of bind a non-signatory um, Switzerland uh, has been said to ignore the notion of the group of companies doctrine, but Swiss courts have seemed to be a bit ambivalent on the topic. So it's kind of all over the board. So if yeah, we have the Indian courts, I've heard, have uh, also embraced the group of companies doctrine, right? <laughs> no, Jill, that's wrong. Uh, 
you're you're gonna be such a good dad i uh just like really baiting baiting no no bad joke like a dad joke <laughs> you are from gothenburg yes. um so and as i said it kind of cuts two ways right it's not just binding non-signatories you can have consenting non-signatories attempting to arbitrate against non-consenting signatories right so you can use an arbitration agreement that you're not a party to to initiate a claim if you don't have a contractual relationship with someone who you've uh, deemed to have harmed you. Um, and then again, you have the, the, the typical version, which is the non-consenting non-signatories being compelled to arbitrate by consenting signatories. Um, so I think those are, those are actually two. I, you don't really see the first one as much. You don't really see a non-signatory trying to get into an arbitration, but um, it can be possible. Yeah, that's true. I'm happy you didn't run too far with the Rusty Park thing of like arbitral tribunals forcing people against their own against consent their into engaging. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, because uh, that, I, yeah, I don't think that happens as much. Then, I mean, the final thing that we can talk about is which law applies. Um, and obviously, you can say that that's the law applicable to the arbitration agreement, but it's not always as clear when you talk about the legal relationship between the parties or whether a party is a party or how the corporate entity is constructed, um, whether a subsidiary is really a subsidiary, et cetera, that can really get into the minutia of mm. the corporate law of the jurisdiction mm. where the entity is incorporated. Uh, so you have to go with, or at least be informed by the uh, the law that would govern the uh, at the, at the corporate seat, so to speak. Exactly. I mean, yeah. If if it, if that was the the legal question, right? I'm, if yeah. the question was whether they had consented or not, then you're going to use the the law governing the arbitration. Um, so that's that's group of companies. I, and I've actually seen this quite often. Really, you the more and more complex arbitra- arbitral disputes are, the more difficult it is to figure out who you're going to who is going to join as a claimant, just as we just pointed out previously, who are you going to claim against as the respondent? Are you claiming it against enough corporations? Have they agreed to it? What if you have a long-standing legal relationship with a corporation and your contracts change? And mm. within those contracts, the arbitration agreement changes or who the arbitration agreement covers or the parties to the contract contracts change? How, how does that all work and, and how... Are you going to figure it out when it comes time to initiate a claim? Yeah, right. It's uh, it's bread and butter for commercial arbitration. I guess an investment arbitration is like the, the respondent is the state and the claimant is everyone who fits the criteria laid down in the treaty. Basically, you don't have this issue. Yeah, yeah. I guess you're right on that one. Um, yeah. Well, I uh, yeah. I was gonna say like fi- no. You're right. It's the state. Okay. <laughs> it sounds like it's time for opening a beer. Yeah, right. Give it to me. So when you explain to smart friends who don't work in this field what international arbitration is, and I, I think you've all had to do this at one point or another, it's a way for parties to opt out of court and instead, you know, have disputes solved in private and confidential settings. When you explain this to non-arbitration friends, sometimes the smart ones who generally work in business ask you, 
well, how hard could it be to manufacture an arbitration award in order to launder money, avoid creditors, or some other crazy reason? And when I asked you this, Brian, rhetorically, you just said, not very hard. Right. <laughs> <laughs> which, which I think is true. Yeah. Unless you're a Russian arbitral institution, that probably has to have a stamp or something. Yes, that is true. But I mean, you can probably forge that also. Right. And in theory, uh, if you could get together a bunch of people and write a fake arbitral award, it's a pretty decent asset given the enforcement scheme afforded by the New York Convention. Did you see a listener tweet, by the way, uh, uh, on the New York Convention t-shirt? Yeah. It was the I Love New York classic iconic t-shirt, but with convention at the bottom in a small <laughs> font. Merch buy, coming I'll, I'll in 2019. For your 22nd birthday. That's right, everyone. I'm 21, young, fresh, and ready to roll. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> so I'm going to read you um, an epic novel called International Commercial Arbitration in Sweden by a certain Kai Hubier. Mm-hmm. Page one. About a case. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Because as far as I know, uh, there is only one case in Sweden where an enforcement uh, or recognition effort under the New York Convention has been refused on grounds of public policy. And I'm going to read you this just to illustrate what we mean by fake arbitration. Um, So an arbitral award was issued in 2001 in Ljubljana, Slovenia, with Robert as the claimant and Johnny as the respondent, which already gives away that they are criminals. (laughs) the award covered the car the cell phones and a camera uh, belonging to uh, one of these brothers because they were brothers and the award also stated that uh, Johnny I think was liable for rent amounting to 38,000 euros for the hire of certain premises owned by Robert as well as damages 50,000 euros for breach of a contract Robert then applied to the Svea Court of Appeal to have the award declared enforceable in Sweden. And the Svea Court of Appeal, however, did not uh, recognize or enforce this award on public policy grounds. And the reason is this. In April 2001, so just before the award supposedly was rendered, Johnny had been sentenced to prison in Sweden mm-hmm. for bank fraud and forgery. And in connection with his arrest, goods that were covered by a title transfer security transaction were seized to satisfy the claims of Johnny's creditors. But Johnny objected to the seizure and claimed that he and Robert had already made a title transfer security transaction under German law with Robert as buyers, uh, which didn't fly with the Swedish enforcement authority. Then, however, they came with his award in which it was clear that uh, Johnny did not have access to this property because uh, it had been won by his brother Robert through an arbitral award. Mm -hmm. And that was uh, the reason, of course, for his trying to recognize the award in Sweden, basically throwing out a a legal obstacle to the Swedish enforcement agency from taking his property from him. But it didn't work because the... uh, always noble Svea Court of Appeal did not recognize the award (laughs) because it did not reflect a true legal relationship. And you could, of course, figure this out because they were brothers and, you know, there were no background documents at all explaining the award or where it came from, what the dispute was even about and, uh, and so on and so forth. 
and there had been like different dates and things were inconsistent. So there were a few red flags and the court decided that this essentially is a fake arbitration. We won't recognize it. So that would be against Swedish public policy. Mm-hmm. Or ordre public, as the francophones would have it. Such a French episode, this episode. Yes. Um, Let me uh, throw a Latin phrase in there as well. Okay. Pactum turpe. Oh, what's that? The, I don't know what it means. And Michele Potesta is going to pick up the phone and call me because he was embarrassed <laughs> when we couldn't uh, figure out what Kuwad is arbitration meant. <laughs> Pactum, I, I think, is a pact, an agreement. Yeah. And Turpe has, uh, I don't know, it's an, it's an adjective of some kind. It means, anyway, which is the only important thing, that it is an agreement that is not recognized by the legal order. Ah. It's something that we are not supposed to respect. So I can't sell you my child, for example. That would be a pactum turpe. And this making up arbitral awards in order to avoid creditors is also a pactum turpe. I see. Mm-hmm. And there was some other... Uh, shame recently- agreement. Yes. Did you Google? Yes. Okay. An agreement that violates law or good manners. Uh, I don't know about you, Joel, but I'm... A pactum torpe kind of guy. <laughs> I'm going to put that on a t-shirt. <laughs> Much better than a pactus in <laughs> The reason we, we thought we should talk about fake arbitrations is not to create a uh, blueprint for people uh, who try to do, do bad things, but because there was a case that we talked about, because it, it's been talked about in the community uh, of arbitration practitioners um, in, in Geneva, right? Or they had some connection to Geneva. Yeah, exactly. I, I actually read that. Oh, you're talking about the one on GAR, right? The yeah, F- yeah, exactly. I just saw the headline, but I, I've talked to other people about it because it, it involves cases where I know other people who are working. Yeah, they were based in Geneva, exactly. So if you read the, the article, do you mind uh, uh, compensating for my lack of uh, search <laughs> and GAR access? Uh, yeah, I mean, I haven't, I didn't read very much into it, but basically two Kuwaiti nationals have been charged along with two Geneva arbitration lawyers. Um, and these are pretty like prominent people in the arbitration community, but also prominent people in Kuwait. One of them being a long-term member of the International Olympic Committee who has since stepped down. There was an article that just came up um, based off this. And basically all five men Oh, there's five of them. I guess there was a fifth person. Um, oh, yeah, one of the, one of his associates. So there's two lawyers and three guys from Kuwait. They've all been charged with forgery of document, documents under Article 251 of the Swiss Criminal Code, um, which carries a potential prison sentence of up to five years. Um, and they these charges were filed before Geneva's uh, Tribunal Correctionnel, uh, which is expected to conduct a trial sometime in 2019. Um, what happened there was that the proceedings relate to videos that um, the these Kuwaiti authorities supposedly show them plotting to remove the emir of Kuwait. Um, so they kind of, and it got spread all over social media and everything like that. Yeah. Um, and so they, they submitted that into an arbitration and the arbitral tribunal rendered an award um and that went to the um or was later recognized in the high court of london 
Um, and so it was said that not only did they falsify this document um, that were in support of this fiction of a dispute, but it was also um, the, the lawyers actually helped in fabricating it. So they actually mm. fabricated the arbitration and the evidence to be submitted in this fake arbitration. Allegedly. Allegedly. Right. They're not convicted yet. Oh, man. Do you think there's a bunch of uh, manufactured fake arbitral awards out there? We, we just know about this and the Geneva case and the Swedish case. And we, this also, we, the email we just got from Rishab uh, about five lawyers in a state in, in India who basically just set up a court of their own, called it arbitration and started handing out awards. But, <laughs> Even but worse. Do, you think there's, <laughs> do you think there are more? And it's just like we we only know the this very small tip of the iceberg, and there's like a whole secondary market for made-up arbitral awards. I, I mean, if there's smoke, there's fire, right? I, if this is happening once with such prominent people in both, you know, the, these authorities are doing it and prominent arbitration lawyers are doing it, I mean, that means it's got to trickle down to the the lay arbitration attorney don't you think yeah exactly and it, it it didn't seem like johnny and robert in in the in the swedish prison cell had arbitration fluency the way they maybe should have but if they did as you say that you only need to be a half decent disputes lawyer and you should be able to manufacture an award that i think might stand at least some scrutiny i was thinking about this because it's similar to the corruption uh, things that we talked about several times on the podcast that you're looking for red flags here or looking for bad faith but it's it's different from corruption in one key respect which is that there's no like adversarial process here in the corruption context you sort of rely on one party raising red flags about the other party's behavior here by definition there is no such party it's just a bunch of people who all have the same objective in trying to scheme the system yeah i mean that makes it very hard to detect this and and this case is pretty intense i mean you're dealing with like a fake arbitration and then they're making up fake evidence to support a fake arbitration done by lawyers that are quite, you know, established and have been in the game for a little bit of time. So yeah, it's like house of cards arbitration. It's a lot of legitimacy around it. Yeah. It's like, that would be a great like movie. Really? You find it's like someone who's been locked up into an insane asylum and they're not insane. It's like you've been charged, you've been found respo- like responsible for $26 million in damages for this arbitration that you had no idea about and doesn't exist. Yeah, and then you, uh, uh, I don't think it would do a lot of good for arbitration's legitimacy, which is kind of under question as it is. You <laughs> have to explain in the, in the Hollywood context what it is, and it would just be essentially a made-up private justice that you don't know anything about, what? even if you're the respondent. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess that it, it's like you're saying, I guess that's going to kind of making awards public um, because then you can't just turn up at a court and be like, oh, you don't know about it. It was confidential, but here we are. Yeah, right. Don't do this at home. Now I just realized we are basically encouraging a bunch of eager young arbitration <laughs> people to... Because <laughs> there's got to be a up. catch somewhere, right? There's got to be some obvious thing that we're not thinking about why this is a bad idea obviously yeah, uh, the jail. authorities in geneva yeah <laughs> how about that one <laughs> yeah 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 or and losing you your bar disbarred. Yeah, yeah exactly uh i wouldn't though and i mean this video supposedly was they they were talking about removing the emir of kuwait um and conducting financial uh, transactions yeah. with israel and bribes other kuwaiti figures actions which they would have faced the death penalty 
Um, so <laughs> playing with fire. Playing with lots of fire. Playing with and live ammo and fireworks and. <laughs> It'd be different if I initiated an arbitration against you and tried to get like fifty bucks out of you and took it to the Swedish courts to enforce, which is not. Don't put it past me, Joel. Um, but I think that you have to pay sixty-five U.S. dollars or the equivalent of just to file the enforcement. <laughs> it's on principle. <laughs> Uh, but I, yeah, I don't, th- I mean, this is, this is very, very, very serious in my opinion. And this guy's Easy. no, no, uh, no stranger, supposedly. That's the problem. No stranger to a little bit of controversy. No, he, the, he is a relatively well-known guy. I don't know. We don't have a policy on naming names, but I don't see that there's a reason that we should talk about him uh, unless this case develops in which case we would probably have to return to it because it's not that common that you see fake arbitrations being no. litigated in Swiss courts <laughs> no but I mean for someone to uh, claim that he has the support of the UK government to apply for the undersecretary general position in the United Nations but actually not have it and go on TV and say you have it um, you, you gotta be a a, unique a Trumpian individual. figure. <laughs> fake news. Fake arbitration. That's oh you know what? I'm gonna use that as a defense in my next arbitration. <laughs> this is all just fake. Fake arbitration. This fake this this claimant is fake, actually. These I've actually been in arbitration. Okay, I, I think, think I talked about that in a previous episode. Where the one of the witnesses just said everything was forged. <laughs> And it was very difficult. Well, everything on the record? Yeah, everything. It was like, well, you signed that. Well, it's forged. Well, there, there's your signature. Forged. Uh, well, here's your signature on another document that looks the same. That's also forged. Fake <laughs> like, news. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lordy, Lord. But I think we have uh, gotten ourselves a name for this episode, finally. It's going to be the fake arbitration. Yes. It's something okay. that comes to us. Uh, send us emails at the arbitration station at gmail.com follow us on twitter where we are the arb station and have a nice two weeks until next time we're on air and happy 2019 oh that's right to all of you and all of us <laughs>